Um, I actually must confess that I love to preach in chapel, so it isn't a burden when I'm busy. David, thank you for saying that. But um, I think the thing I miss the most about the pastorate is, is the preaching, and not the preaching as much as the preaching to ongoing preaching to the same people over and over again. And for the last 10 years after I left the pastorate, I was mostly dealing with one-shot deals. And so it's always fun to be thinking about being amongst people, again, that I love and, and that I share life with on an ongoing basis. So this is fun. We also have the Doctor of Ministry students here today. They're the ones that look just slightly older, <laughs> more burdened, uh, and, uh, and we're really wanting a lunch break than being here, but we're glad you're here anyway. This is great. Uh, whenever I'm going to speak somewhere, Carla always asks me this question. She always says, well, what are you going to speak on? And, and I'll always say, well, I don't know. I used to have the answer, I'll speak about God in about 20 minutes, but that's gotten a little tired. But <coughs> she, um, she always says, well, why don't you preach about why you became a Christian? Now, you have to understand, this was a sermon I preached years ago. That she is the only sermon she remembers, <laughs> and, and so uh, and so I'm kind of. Whenever she says that, I think it must have been a good sermon, but I've never found it <laughs> again. So I haven't been able to do that. But I am going to talk to you today uh, about why I'm a Christian. Uh, I, I I wasn't sure on Saturday if I'd still be around, even though that wasn't my framework. Uh, <laughs> So I had to come up with something quickly. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but, I, but I think it's important for you to know, especially you who work with me, uh, kind of what makes me tick and, and how my faith interacts with my life. I'm always amazed when one of you takes one of my classes and kind of are surprised. It's like maybe he isn't the idiot that I thought he was or something like that. But I want to talk to you a little bit about why I think it's critical to understand why you are a person of faith at this time. I also want you to understand that I think this is probably one of the most exciting and most difficult times to be a person of faith in the 21st century. Uh, I read Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, almost two days. I got it on my e-reader and read it on the plane. It's a fast read, uh, and, and it's a bestseller already. It was one of the best advertised Books and I read it immediately because I was fascinated by all of the dialogue that was going on. I was fascinated by the furor that pe- some people seemed very upset, and others seemed kind of, what's the, what's going on? Do you know what I'm talking about? The book Love Wins. Oh yeah, everybody knows. Good. Um, I find, and I also was fascinated because I find Rob Bell to be an amazingly gifted communicator uh, who has this uncanny ability to express all of the questions that we ask. I mean, it's, I think if you grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of conservative background, you've been afraid of questions anyway. I didn't grow up in that kind of a background, so questions have always haunted me. But most of us have asked the questions, but we never put them into words in conservative backgrounds because we're afraid that if we ask the questions, somehow we're doubting our faith or something like that. And I think Rob Bell and others like him are profoundly good at framing the questions, at, at kind of finding a way to ask the questions that all of us ask about heaven and hell, in particular in this book, 
about what we believe about those things and, and how we work out the whole framework of our theology. But I need to tell you that I was really disappointed in the book. Not because I didn't think he actually articulated the questions extremely well, which I do think he did. I, I think he pretty well asked every question I've ever asked in my whole entire life about that whole issue. What I was disappointed in was that I don't think that he was helpful in struggling with what I think is the struggle for a person of faith in the 21st century. I was disappointed that he chose not to live in the tension that's created both between the questions and a grounded faith. I mean, the idea that I actually believe something well, I still wonder in the midst of it. It seems to me that it's there, the tensions between what you'd like to do because it would be so much easier to resolve the tensions that you feel by just kind of giving in to those questions and what you believe. Because that's where faith is lived in the 21st century. That's where the struggle of faith is, accommodating and giving in to my engagement into the culture and the tensions that are a result of that or bearing, as some do, just burying my head in the sand and lacking any compassion to see people and the tensions that my faith brings for me. This is the tension of Jonah. Think about it. This very reluctant prophet goes to Nineveh, preaches the world's worst sermon, and then goes up onto a hill and waits to see God kind of Bring it down. That's basically what he's done. He's gone up to the hill. Let's see God bring it down. And then God doesn't do it. And then what does Jonah do? He, of the man with his head in the sand, says, I'm mad. I don't even want to live. And then God asks this interesting question to self-righteous Jonah. What about the children? What about the cows? That's one of my favorite lines in there. <laughs> Being an urban person, I just... What about the cows? I'd go, oh, I can get them at Safeway. <laughs> what about the children? I mean, this tension between what I believe as a grounded faith, what I hold to, and all of the things that are somehow part of my experience that, that raise questions. I lived that for most of my life in pastoral ministry because I pastored downtown congregations. And downtown congregations are profoundly different than, than uh, suburban congregations because in downtown congregations, people openly bleed. Like they just kind of bleed all over you. In the suburbs, they hemorrhage. You know, because it's, it's, it's part of the ethos. You're not supposed to be in pain. You're, not spo you're supposed to be successful. And, and you kind of play it up but in downtown congregations, everybody kind of bled all over you. And you kind of knew. If you were gay, you knew it. You knew the person by name. If you were struggling with some kind of gender confusion, everybody knew it because they just kind of lived it. Or how about D-Day? Every time we got to Remembrance Day, we had people sitting in our congregation, one, a couple of who had been in the German army, one whose brother was killed in the Dutch resistance by Germans. We had people who didn't even know there was a World War II. I mean, and, and what does reconciliation and forgiveness look like in this place? 
How does one, here's the question I think for the 21st century. How does one stay truth to, true to what they believe and yet at the same time have compassion to care and to identify with people? This is the challenge of faith lived in the 21st century. You see, theology means nothing unless you have faces. And when you have faces, all of a sudden, this whole thing changes for you. And everything becomes attention. Like, what do I do? If I believe in the uniqueness and the exclusivity of Christ, what do I do with those of my family or my friends, my dearest friends, who are not believers? Do I not ask the question? My point is this. My faith has fueled my life. It first got a hold of me in university. But it's made my life way more difficult. It made it much more full, to be sure, and much more alive. But it is also, because of my faith in Jesus Christ, caused incredible, incredible pressure. It would have been easier for me to have stuck my head in the sand and pretended that I didn't have all those kinds of questions and all of those kinds of people in my life. It would be so much easier to pretend as if they don't even exist, but I can't. It's not who I am. Stanley Harwis wrote something that helped describe what happened to me in university. Time and time again, he says, on the university campus, you were told that freedom of ideas is the most important idea. Everyone's enslaved to something, he says. It's a crock. The goal of faith is to make you enslaved to the right stuff. Christians exist to demonstrate to the culture that true freedom is being yoked to what is true. Jesus. You see, years ago, on a university campus, without the help of any university ministry, I found Jesus, or if that bothers you theologically, he found me. <laughs> That's why Paul's writing and his call in Romans 1, 16 to 17, if you have your Bibles, has always captured my imagination. Let me just for a few min minutes tell you why. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Why am I a Christian? First of all, because for me it became a revealed truth. In Jesus, I found an overriding foundational response to all the whys that I was asking in my life. Somehow, though, in Jesus, I found a way to integrate, as the reformers would say, my worldview, to help me understand the whole of existence, or at least give frame to it. I'm a Christian because in Jesus Christ, I both understand and am called to a reality about life. It's alienation, it's brokenness, and even it's hope. 
Karl Barth said in his commentary to the Romans, to, on Romans, that the good news is not a truth among many truths, rather it's a question mark against all that claims to be true. From the opening narrative of the scriptures in Genesis, the stage is set. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 at the very end are naked and they are not ashamed. And you should underline that three or four times because it is the critical words in that passage. They were naked and they were not ashamed. In my class, I often show that Alanis Morissette uh, song, the video. I don't know if thank you if you've seen it. She's naked in the video. Uh, some people don't like the video. I have to give them an excuse to leave. But the first time I saw that, because it's a song about a spiritual search. I don't know if you knew that, but I heard her interview. Uh, I don't care what kind of spiritual search. It's her spiritual search. And isn't it interesting in that video that she's naked? This search spiritually to go back to the place in which we once were. That's what our spiritualness is about. About trying to find the place that we lost. Genesis chapter 3. The first thing that happens in their alienation is they become aware of themselves. And they're ashamed. In Genesis chapter 3, all of a sudden I'm introduced to what happens when we become alienated from the Creator, from God. They became alienated from God and therefore from themselves and each other and the creation that they once had had stewardship over. And if you want to know who God is in this amazing story that starts in Genesis, then you should ask the question, what's the first question that he asks? When he wanders into the garden, once at one with his creation, now knowing there is something wrong, is the first question, what have you done? No. The first question is, where are you? you want to know the heart of God, you've got to know that first question. One of my favorite stories in the Chronicles of Narnia is the Shasta as he's wandering along the mountain with the horse. And he can't, he's worried that he's going to fall off with the horse. And, but he feels this presence that's holding him on. And he looks out into the fog and he says, who are you? He's wondering who this is that's holding him on. He says, who are you? And out of the fog comes Aslan, the Christ figure. And he growls this. As Shasta stands back and goes, who are you? Aslan growls, one who has waited long for you to speak. Isn't that a great line? One who has waited long for you to speak. If you want to know who God is, and wonder why he asks the question, where are you? One who has waited long for you to speak. It's a revealed truth that in this I found a way of understanding. But lest you get cocky about this truth, Paul wants you to be very mindful that you believe this by faith. You'll find it very difficult to live a life of engaged and examined faith if you do not have some humility in the fact that you have chosen to believe. I believe, as Carla one time defined Christianity this way, 
I believe that the Christian life is a progressive restoration of a lost likeness. The likeness that we once had before we fell. That to find our true selves, the person God made us to be, I believe that the foundation of my faith is Jesus Christ, not just to save me. Because I must confess to you in all of my understanding of the Christian life, heaven has never been a big driving force for me. Not just to save me, but to set me free from the alienation that was the result of the fall in my life. I'm also a Christian because I observe the power. It's an interesting point that Paul makes here. For he says, it is the power for salvation of everyone who believes. Now, if you grew up in a church like I did, you may have missed this, because I did. We kind of talked about power as if it was a nice idea. You know, it kind of happened then. It might happen in the future. But let's just do church while we wait for God to show up at some point. It took charismatics in university for me. And a few Pentecostals spread in to help me understand that this was not just a mental assertion that God was powerful. It meant that he would work. I should expect him to work. I should look for him to work. In fact, I think Paul here is saying that this power is actively present. It's not just past or future. It is actively present and it is observable. You can see it at work. Think about the blind man that Jesus healed. He didn't even know who Jesus was. And what does he say? I don't know. But all I know is this. Once I was blind, now I see. Over and over again. I see that in people who come to know Jesus. Something happens. Something changes them. For a number of years, I lived in Regina. It's actually where I first met Carla. Thank you. <laughs> and I was chaplain on the university as well as partly uh, the pastor of one, one of the pastors in a downtown church there. And I had started a number of Bible studies on campus, and one I started was amongst art artists. And this amazing thing happened that a number of them came to faith. Uh, and a number came to this, uh, to the Bible study, interestingly enough, that weren't people of faith. And we used to have these amazing conversations. One of them was Russell Mang. He's now, if you go out into the prairies, he's a well-known prairie artist who now lives in Vancouver. They all are traitors. <laughs> and Russell would come to my office oftentimes, and he had long, long stringy hair, and it, and he kind of had framed it around his ears. And I never knew why. I mean, it was the era when hair was a little bit longer. I want everybody to notice I got a haircut finally. Rob's nodding his head. It's about time. Uh, and Russell had this hair that was kind of down over his ears all the time. And one day, just by chance, he brushed it back for a second. And I realized that he had hearing aids in his ears. Uh, and then I realized that he had them in both his ears. I didn't know that. And so we continued these conversations, and 
I realized that there was, there was just some, this, he was not a person of faith yet. But this is what happened months later. I still remember the day when Russell Mang walked into my office. His hair was cut short, not to please his mother. And he said to me this, Gary, I want you to know, I became a Christian last night, and I cut my hair this morning. And I remember thinking to myself, I thought he had become a Christian before he even said it. God at work. One of the, one of the, one of the dreadful things, I think, for we who have been long in faith, is we lose this ability to be aware that God is at work, that it's observable, that it's present. We study it, and then we lose the ability that this good news actually transforms, changes people's lives. Over and over again, I've watched that as it's happened. The most audacious statement in this passage is this. He's the answer. Jesus himself made the claim. He was the way, the truth, and the life. This exclusivity is the stumbling block for many, and it's the very foundation of Rob Bell's questions, and mine, and yours. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the years with people who are seeking faith, who are trying to understand this. I remember sitting up on an island in the Muskoka's with a group of people and this wonderful person in our little church that we attend who's just a vibrant searcher she was at that time. And us sitting on the hill, as she said, the only thing that I can't get my mind around, Gary, the only thing that I can't understand is this idea of the exclusivity of Jesus. And I said this. I said, I agree. I think it's a hard thing for me to get my mind around too. I believe it. I said, I believe it with all my heart. But I wish it weren't so. Does that bother some of you? Well, you haven't had enough non-Christians in your life. Because you wish it wasn't so. But I believe it with all my heart. That's the tension of faith. Newbigin calls this the uniqueness of Christ. It's not a value statement on all others who search, spirituality, search spiritually for God as much as it's a powerful and a profound statement that in Christ all is different in anyone's search. Uniquely in Christ, Paul says, a righteousness from God is revealed. But Paul's quick to remind you that all this is by faith. So be unashamed about the gospel. It is a revealed truth that is powerfully observable and present. It changes lives. And with all my heart, I have given myself to this because I believe in its relevance as the answer to the condition of humankind. Hold to that. And don't be afraid of the tensions in the questions. But hold to the belief that in Christ, all is made possible. I was sitting at lunch 
a number of years ago in Edmonton with another non-believer. It's the thing I miss the most about my ministry is that I got to spend more time with non-believers than believers, which may explain why I'm not always good with believers. I used to have these great lunches and coffees. He had met one of our parishioners on a plane. She was very attractive, and, and I think that she kind of won him to church, at least, at that point. Uh, he was very interested in her and wanted to talk about his faith and after we had sorted out that that probably wasn't going to help him uh, with this woman because uh, she had a little bit higher standards than, than he thought, um, we, we continued a conversation for a number, of, a number of months, a number of years actually. And the first lunch that he and I ever had, we were talking about faith and I said, well, what is it about Christianity that bothers you? One of the big issues I think is find out what people actually are thinking. He says, I just don't believe the story. Okay, I said, which part of the story, I asked. It was a natural question. Well, it turned out that not only did he not believe in the story, he did not know the story, which was a very interesting discovery which began a conversation over a number of months and a number of years. He would come and he'd go, he'd come and he'd go. We talked about the story. But mostly we talked about the Jesus who was the center of that story. I remember the day I baptized him. And I remember when I brought him up, I said this to him. So what do you think of the story now? And he looked at me and he said this. He, he hugged me, which was a bad move because I still had my shirt on underneath my little robe and now I was soaked. And he whispered in my ear, it's made all the difference. It's made all the difference. That's why I'm a Christian. Let's pray. I'm not ashamed of the good news, O Father. For in Jesus, you have revealed a righteousness that has set us free. Help us to live in our questions, grounded in the confidence of who you are in our lives. Amen.